Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. From the most beautiful weather to be stuck inside for, break the glass. It's election shock therapy, almost <laughs> summer edition. Guys, how you doing? Hanging in there. Staying alive. BG style? Yes, actually. <laughs> Don't ask me to sing, sing it, though, for the podcast. So. Um, have you seen, there's a guy, of course there's a guy, there's always a guy, who does mashups on YouTube of various kind of like hit songs. If you're going to listen to one of them, I strongly recommend a mashup of BG Staying Alive and ACDC's Back in Black. It's fantastic. Wow. It's I could, so good. I could maybe get on board with that. So. I, I was I dare say it improves upon both songs. Okay. Anyway. Is that possible? Uh, yes, definitely. Wow. Um, anyway, joining me in this Google Hangout today are Andy Bramson, Matt Kukum, and Sam Mulberry. Sam, do you have a meeting today? Uh, I had a bunch. This is my last one. So but I'll be around. <laughs> nice. Right. Okay. Well, we're gonna look, we're gonna look to you at the end here. I'm gonna swing back around to you, Sam, and uh, ask you a question. So, before we get to that, and before we get to the end of the podcast, and some things we're gonna do there, uh, we're gonna talk about. Wait for it. Yes, the coronavirus. Wow. <laughs> Amazing. But we have a specific reason to talk about the coronavirus uh, today. We're not gonna just talk about. Um, the administration's handling of the coronavirus or uh, some of the, you know, ins and outs of day-to-day policy decisions. We're going to look ahead to the namesake of this podcast, which is the 2020 election. And we're going to talk about some of the ways that as political scientists, we would expect a global pandemic affecting the United States to have sustained impacts on the 2020 election. Now, there's a lot we don't know. We don't know the epidemiological course of the disease. Of course, we're all like everybody else in the United States becoming amateurs at looking at uh, amateur experts, looking at models of the progression of the disease. But we most want to say, based a little bit on what we might expect might be happening by November, what are some of the possible outcomes that could affect what would be an otherwise a normal presidential campaign season. So I'm going to start gentlemen with um, a little bit of a conundrum that I Mm -hmm. think we as political scientists can get to the uh, bottom of, which is the very different routes the two political parties have taken with respect to their political conventions. Now, just to kind of frame this for our listeners, the Republicans have basically stayed the course and they said they're looking forward to a full in-person, face-to-face election, or face-to-face election, sorry, face-to-face convention. (laughs) Uh, And um, that should, you know, with about 50,000 people being present, where Donald Trump will accept the nomination for the 2020 uh, Republican ticket. Mm -hmm. In contrast, the Democrats are pretty divided. And there's a nice New York Times story uh, from yesterday where the New York Times interviewed something like almost 60 delegates. These are regular uh, nominated delegates and then super delegates for the Democratic Democratic Party. And there's a lot of division within the group, although almost all of them said that they prefer to stay home. So basically, this this small sample of of delegates said that they didn't want to go. And the Democrats are entertaining three different plans. One is to basically have a face-to-face convention like the Republicans. One is to have a modified face-to-face, which is most people stay home, but the speakers would be there basically. So it's kind of like the sports teams playing to empty stadiums, right? Uh, You'd have people Mm -hmm. on stage um, and no crowd noise, or at least piped in crowd noise of some kind, and people, the actual delegates voting from home. Or just straight up, everybody's online. So Joe Biden accepts the nomination from his basement. Um, is basically the three plans Democrats are entertaining. Why is there such a different approach between the two parties to this very similar decision? It mirrors some of the larger approaches we are seeing on on this issue, which is that Republicans are much more skeptical of 
you know, the need for the level of intervention um, that you're getting advocated by Democrats, right? And so, um, you know, states that are dominated more by Republicans have been generally quicker to go back, open up. Um, not that they've done no closing, but they've been, you know, inclined to say we need to get back to normal as quickly as possible. Um, and Democrats have been much more um, concerned about that move and more inclined to be kind of super cautious about that. Um, so I think that's that's a big part of like why you're doing it. And in rank and file, Republicans, Democrats mirror those attitudes. I mean, where Republicans are much more concerned about the economy and Democrats are, are concerned about the economy, but also um, really concerned about the disease itself. Um, so it's a you get a real division. So, that, you know, in many ways, those are kind of symbols of what we're seeing in other politics. Yeah, I'd be curious if um, what if we were to sort of conduct the same sort of interview with 60 um, Republican delegates, what they would say, because it's interesting. There's also some polling out um, that does more of a deep dive into sort of the differences amongst Democrats and Republicans and their view on COVID. And it's interesting that the majority of Americans, um, and this is a true uh, across party lines, think that certain forms of social distancing are a good idea, like the six foot rule and wearing face masks and not having super large gatherings where you see more differences is on, you know, is more of the sort of the small little gradations of how soon should this particular type of business be open and in what capacity, right? Um, And their differences also get to um, what the chief threat is um, and whether or not we have already face that threat. So Republicans are far more likely to see that the um, the threat of getting infected, um, the highest sort of you know peak of threat from the pandemic itself, that we've already passed that. Democrats see that as coming at some point in the future. And that's going to also have an impact upon um, how Democrats and Republicans view, you know, the whether or not to have a regular convention or not. But I don't know. I, I it wouldn't surprise me um, that once we get, you know, a little more into the summer, maybe sometime by the, you know, by 4th of July, um, that some Republicans, um, rank and file Republicans start expressing concern about actually meeting, um, Mm -hmm. in a sort of a normal convention setting. And I do wonder if, um, if, if some of the elites are going to the party elites and the Republican party are going to have to come to their senses and say like, Hey, this probably isn't going to work. We're going to have to change something. Matt, let me let me propose this to you. Tell me if you think this is fair. Um, if it's tr- let's let's say both parties kind of continue with this and you know sort of taking the partisan divide and living it out with their conventions. Republicans have fifty thousand people. Where is the Republican convention going to be? I know Democrats are in Milwaukee, Charlotte, North Carolina. There we go. Let's say we get um, fifty thousand or so Republicans in Charlotte. They all get together. And let's say the Democrats go with something that's mostly virtual. That's kind of the medium range option. So Joe Biden is in Milwaukee um, and his vice president <laughs> is in Milwaukee. And, um, and we, you know, um, but there's not that many delegates there. There's only a couple, couple hundred people and practicing social distancing, the whole thing. Right. Is it fair to say that at one point there's going to be buyer's remorse on one party or the other? that somebody will realize, ooh, we went the wrong direction with this. Like either we, either for the Democrats, we missed an opportunity for a big spectacle and we looked like we were being scared or the Republicans saying, oh, but we got together and a bunch of us got COVID and it looks like we, we, we looked feckless. Um, is that, is, is there going to be a buyer's remorse one way or the other? Yeah, I mean, the Democrats lose and they don't have a regular convention Republicans do, then yeah, there might be some buyer's remorse. And then, yeah, if a bunch of Republicans get infected and, you know, there's deaths and that's reported in the media, yeah, they could they could have buyer's remorse there. Um, but of course, um, you know, partisans being what they are kind of live in their own little worlds, um, their own realities, right? And we know this. Um, and so you can expect... Um, things to be explained away on either side, perhaps, um, by, you know, talking heads on either side, um, and ideologues sort of falling in line with that. So the question is, you know, is that going to make an impact upon, you know, the people in the middle who are going to swing this election one way or the other? And uh, I don't know. What I wonder too, though, is like, I mean, the, because optics matter, right? And I'm not sure how much conventions matter anymore, um, but I think they do matter at the edges um, in terms of like there are undecided voters. There are people who tune in certainly no sooner than that, some, some of them later. Um, there's a big difference between giving a speech to a crowd and giving a speech to a teleprompter, right? Yeah. And, and not very many politicians are 
that good at doing the latter, right? Um, without some kind of crowd to engage right. with. And Joe Biden is certainly very good at engaging crowds um, in terms of like, that's one of his strengths. I think he's not a great, like sort of, I'm just a disciplined speaker, right? He likes to play to the crowd and he likes, he gets energy from that. And so I'm just trying to imagine Joe Biden giving a good speech, a compelling speech to an empty room, right? Um, or even Trump know. for that matter, either one. Well, especially I mean, Trump. They, especially they, both, Trump. they both feed off of crowds. Yeah, so. but Trump's not talking yeah. about doing that, right? I mean, he's sounding no, pretty that's true. Like yes. He wants to yes. get it to the crowd. And so I'm just wondering, like, how do those two compare? Like, if Trump gets to give it to a, a room full of cheering partisans and, you know, tout, like, what he, you know, his version of the last four years, right? Um, and Biden gives it to Zoom. <laughs> like, that's going to contrast in a not great way for Joe Biden. Now, again, if, if three weeks later, right, like, 50% of the Republican delegates are, you know, in the hospital, then that's not going to look be a good news cycle for Trump either, right? Yeah. But, um, but yeah, insofar as that speech matters, that's... That's really interesting. Yeah. So there's a lot of middle middle options that Republicans could take too. They could say like, well, we're not going to do 50K, but we're going to have a, a smattering, yeah. you know, representative sample. We're going to have like yeah. 5,000 people in the room or 2,000. We're going to have three seats between all of them. And, yeah. you know, and we're going to maybe find a way to amplify the noise a little bit if, if that would help. And, and like yeah. there's things you can do to have a live convention and make it feel kind of like a live convention to get some of that effect without mm -hmm. actually having, you know, you know, 50,000 more bodies, you know, sitting in seats. Right. Although the optics are weird there too, right? I mean, yeah, it is. when you look at the crowds, I mean, it's like yeah. going to a sports game when like it's poorly attended, right? I mean, I was at Baylor when we were terrible in football and you'd have games. It was just like, it wasn't very exciting, right? Because you go and like, wow, that's a lot of empty seats. Look at those seats. There they you are. You know what we need? We need robots. That's what we Yeah. Need. I mean, well, you almost do. Yeah, but... <laughs> <laughs> Some of the sports franchises like the NBA are talking about having games where they pipe in crowd noise and CGI fans into the state into the stands. So there would be kind of like this, not yeah. robots, but sort of like, you know, which I, I, I kind of say this is not a political at all, but I love this idea because there's so many opportunities to, to like tie in like movie uh, crowds. Oh, yeah. From famous yeah. movies how great would it be to have like the oakland raiders and or not the, they're not oakland raiders anymore but like they have the raiders but have like their fan <laughs> be the sith eternal from rise of skywalker this oh is, yeah i mean i'm yeah. you have CGI crowds you can have all your former presidents there it doesn't matter yeah. that they're dead i mean like Graham Lincoln is in the crowd of the republican yeah, have Ronald reagan yeah, Ronald reagan, Tupac. yeah this Ronald be reagan is endorsing <laughs> donald trump on stage right like, gonna, oh we Deep just fake meets meets holograms. Yes. <laughs> this yes. is this is getting good, guys. So it's gonna be great. Anyway. So back sorry. to the semi-reality. I actually kind of, I, I I'm really kind of convinced by uh by you guys your point, Matt, that these two uh, groups really live in separate media worlds. And having a full-fledged convention might really benefit the Republicans in as much as having a very cautious social distancing right. convention might might benefit the Democrats. And as of right now, as we're thinking about those swing independents in between, right now they seem to be tilting towards Democrats insofar as they're concerned about um, re-engaging in society. Mm -hmm. Right. Most pub most public opinion shows a decided advantage towards sort of caution at this point. Yeah. Well, it is interesting to note um, on that point the sort of concern that Americans have for the economic impacts of the shutdown and the self-distancing, um, it's sort of peaked uh, about a month ago, six weeks ago, and then sort of stayed flat, which is very high. Um, but you have seen a gradual tick down in concern about um, the likelihood of getting infected or someone you know getting infected. That has been slowly tapering off. There's, it's still very high. Um, still a healthy majority of, Amer of Americans, like 65%, are very concerned or somewhat concerned about getting infected, right? Um, of course, you know, the, the decreasing, you know, amount of concern is primarily amongst Republicans, less so amongst yeah. Democrats. So, yeah. so you know, I, I don't know how much of this is going to affect independence, Um you know, our, our independents, you know, tuning in and making a decision of who they're going to vote for based off of the conventions, eh, maybe, maybe a few. 
Um, but I guess where conventions can have an have an impact is they can have an impact on sort of the trajectory of the campaign going into fall. Into the fall, they can have an effect on fundraising. Um, you know, they can have a, an effect on sort of media narratives, and and those are important things, um, and can you know help or hurt you at the margins. I think. Yeah, I, I think you're right. The traditional uh, conventionalism for political science is that the campaigns themselves don't win or lose elections. The campaigns are good for a short-term boost in the polls. Both parties get a short-term boost after they have a convention. So if the, Rep the Republicans have a full-fledged convention in Charlotte, we would expect them to have a boost or Trump to have a boost in the polls after that. And if the Democrats have something less than a full convention, we would expect either a more muted bounce or maybe nothing. Uh but we don't yeah. expect long-term effects from the convention. Yeah, and, and conventions are in some ways less important than they used to be, um, because right. now I mean, we live in an era of you know micro-targeting uh, for campaigns, right? And we have you know these field offices and thousands of staffers and many more volunteers, you know, picking picking targeted messages for like particular people, right? right. Um, and so there, are, it's and, and and now you know politicians they don't have to go through the media; they can they can go directly to to the people using social media, you know, using all sorts of other things. And so conventions just really aren't quite as important as they used to be. Um, and what's more important now is like, you know, how effective is your get out the, get out the vote um, effort um, mm -hmm. in particular states? Um, how organized are you in particular states? So yeah, campaigns don't matter a whole lot, but they can, if you're not well organized in particular swing states, um, and if you're not spending, you know, time and money there, that can hurt you in the long run. You know, that's, you know, a large part why Hillary Clinton lost in 2016 is because she didn't campaign well in certain key states um, in the northern Midwest, right? Um, and so that that matters a lot more than conventions when it really comes down to winning battleground states, I'd say. Well, let's talk about direct, that directly. So uh, speaking of the terms of get out the votes, obviously, yeah, um, candidates can film all the commercials they want. And Donald Trump at, at present has a much larger war chest uh, in terms of fundraising um, compared to Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. And it's unlikely that that advantage is going to be erased. Uh, Joe Biden is not known as a particularly good fundraiser. And so we would expect the Republicans to maintain a healthy dollar advantage in terms of fundraising through this election cycle. But how much is the, um, is the coronavirus likely to affect those kind of get out the vote pushes, those street level door knocking kinds of politics where people are interacting with other human beings? Do we think that this actually will change how uh, elections are campaigned? I mean, it also gets at the question of how the vote's going to happen, right? Which has been another, another mm -hmm. big debate we're having. I mean, you know, if, if you're concerned about people being too in too close a proximity, right. Then voting polling places, places are one of those concerns, right. They're, they're a place where people are going to be naturally kind of close together. Um, and so do you give more mail options, right. You give more kind of, you know, distance ways of voting. Um, and then that, that changes get out of the vote. I mean, then you're talking about like, Hey, can we get you a ballot? Um, will you put in this request for a ballot? Have you sent in your ballot? So then it's much more about like, so maybe phone calling or things like that. Um, okay, yeah. so Andy, now, can, we, can we take a, a rabbit trail down into the voting itself there? Because um, the argument in favor of expanding vote by mail options is mm -hmm. is is pretty readily apparent. By, by having vote by mail, you get more people access to vote more conveniently. Particularly important during the time of a pandemic when people might be reticent to show up to a polling place and cast right. a ballot. What is the argument against vote by mail? Because there is a clear one, I think it's being made by Republicans primarily, and it's not yeah. it's not just the um, it's not just uh, crass partisanship, which which has been acknowledged by by Donald Trump even that vote by mail advantages Democrats. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, so some Republicans are concerned that vote by mail opens up um, greater opportunities for for voter fraud. Right. Yeah. Um, not just rigging an election, which can happen without any attempt by voters themselves. Right. Um, right. You could hack into a system and change the results. But sure. actual voter fraud, people submitting ballots um, um, fraudulently um, yeah. and. You know, you don't see a whole lot of real voter fraud in states that um, use um, a complete vote by mail system. Um, so there's some states, so Washington, Oregon, Utah, 
uh, Colorado and uh, Hawaii all use um, complete vote by mail systems. And, you know, extensive voter fraud really is an issue there. Now, it's those states have figured out systems to actually prevent voter fraud um, from from happening. So so it's not a really good argument. Um, I think a, a more more compelling argument is that it's really hard to um, ramp up a, a statewide um, vote by mail system in such a short period of time. Um, right. And a, perhaps a better approach would be to do something of a mix, right? So Nebraska recently, as well as Wisconsin, there's a couple of recent primary and special elections. And basically what they did in Nebraska, for example, is they mailed everyone in the state um, a two different times a form which they could use to apply for an absentee ballot. A lot of people avail themselves of that opportunity. And it's a it's a no excuse system. So you don't have to provide a valid excuse like you do in a lot of states to actually get an absentee ballot. So they made that opportunity available. Um, and then they still had your traditional sort of polling stations open. They didn't have polling stations in you know the resident nursing homes, so they didn't do those. But in the polling stations that they did have, they had lots of precautions, lots of PPE for the for the poll workers, lots of glass shields, hand sanitizer all over the place, wiping everything down. It actually turned out that the combination of these two things actually meant that you took some stress off of and off of these polling centers. So you had fewer people there, but overall you had record breaking turnout in Nebraska, mm -hmm. um, believe it or not. And so I think that's probably gonna be the best system for most states that don't have um, um, a good sort of um, statewide um, vote by mail system that can handle the volume of everyone voting by mail, some sort of, some sort of um, combination, I think, is going to probably work best for most states. And, and honestly, I think, you know, states are already starting to tackle this problem and in, in finding different solutions. So honestly, I'm not too worried about it. And also, there's basically no evidence that a vote by mail has um, provides any advantage to either party. Yeah. Um, there's actually some recent studies um, that have been done by some political scientists where they tackle this question directly. And there's very little partisan advantage. If anything, you might see a little bit of advantage for um, for Democrats because um, you have you know young people um, like the convenience of voting um, by mail. But on the other hand, there might be a slight advantage for Republicans, especially for the older Republican, uh, the older voters who tend to right. vote more Republican, it's more convenient and safer for them. And so yep. these probably cancel each other out. So there's really not a clear partisan advantage either way. There could be a, an interesting public policy question, which we should pay attention to. Let's say if a bunch of states start adopting your model, which I agree is the most reasonable model of having some open polling places and some vote by mail options, is if the states then begin to say, okay, in this era where we need to have fiscal austerity somewhere, we're, we're going to offer vote by mail, but we're also going to close some polling places. And so we're going to have far, you know, for, you know, if, if, the, if the Twin Cities normally have 250 polling places, we're only going to have 150. Right. Then the question becomes, which ones do you close? Right. And obviously, just, just like our previous conversation a couple of weeks ago about uh, districting, where you have polling places really matters. And that will be an interesting question. For sure. Mm -hmm. Um, so we know that traditional campaigning is going to be affected. We're probably going to see some less door knocking, uh, by, by campaigns, some less get out the vote campaigns that way, which raises the importance of technology and using sort of what Matt, what you talked about micro targeting and getting those specific messages, those specific phone calls that aren't sort of just general robocalls, but specifically tailored to the occupants of a, of a house. Uh, and getting them motivated to vote. And that's going to be really interesting to see who has the better system in place to make that happen. And what matters really is not so much getting that to happen everywhere in the country, right? This really only matters probably, as we've talked about, in those battleground states. And, and not necessarily even everywhere in those battleground states, but in specific localities in those battleground states. And um, so that's something to pay attention to as well. But... I want, um, on, on a more general level, and I'm sort of dubious. I, I had this on our outline of things to talk about. Do you guys think that the, uh, the 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 pandemic is going to affect polling? Now, obviously, people are still going to be answering their phones, and so that that shouldn't change things. But will people will there be some kind of systematic effect of polling on polling itself of of the coronavirus? I don't immediately see why there would be. Um, yeah, 
I can't, I can't think why. I mean, I guess I, I'm not constructing in my mind, like, why why would it have a systematic effect to change polling and make polling less reliable? If anything, mm -hmm. it, it should theoretically make it easier to get a hold of anyone <laughs> yeah, um, to have a truly <laughs> random sample, mm -hmm. and that, that actually might help polling. But I don't know. I'm not a polling expert, so take that for what it's worth. <laughs> well, let me throw, I mean, this is, I don't think it's going to affect turnout of polling or reliability per se, but I think we could get some temporary effects from the coronavirus that will be, um, uh, that might skew people's perceptions. So one of the things that uh, um, pollsters pay attention to in presidential election cycles are um, which issues matter to voters. And right. obviously um, health is going to go way higher than it usually would. Health, healthcare yeah. is usually high on, on, on voters' concerns. It's going to be much higher, and the economy is going to be very, very high this year, almost to the point of dwarfing things, otherwise kinds of things that would normally be concerns. Uh, crime and security are probably going to be lower than right. typical just because of, uh, I think, because of these kinds of effects. And so we should, I would expect this to affect the campaign as well. I yeah. would have to think that almost... If there are debates between uh, Biden and Trump, uh, oh gosh, are there going to be debates between Biden and Trump? They just can't shake hands before and after. I don't know. I mean, debates don't seem that hard to do, right? I mean, you can yeah. easily distance. You just need three people in a room. Now, I am. They're probably going to have to get rid of that town hall style debate thing where yeah. there's yeah. a crowd and they sort of wander around the room. Um, yeah. That's yeah. not going to happen. You know that that would be if there's a positive to all this. That would be exactly. a positive. I I yep. loathe the town hall debate. They're so fakey. I mean, because it's not a real town hall. It's like everything's staged. You have all everyone's like kind of pre-approved their question, pre-approved getting in there. Like it's just such like just be honest with what this is, right? So yeah, just put them in the room with a good moderator. And exactly. you know, debates are debates have lots of downsides anyway. But if you're gonna do them. Just do it with a moderator. Don't have these like average citizens that you've carefully vetted asking questions. Yeah, exactly. Now, is there any chance that either Trump or Biden says, nope, I'm not debating? I don't know. I mean, if if one of them says I'm going to debate, then there's going to be pressure on the other one. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if they both, you know, mutually agree that, well, we're not going to debate because both of them have, you know, liabilities in the debate. Yeah. Then, then maybe, um, <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. I, I have a hard time seeing, I mean, I could see Biden saying, yeah, I'd like to take on Trump or I could see Trump saying, oh, I'd like to take on Biden and the other one, maybe not wanting to participate, but I, I don't know. You is just, it fair to say, is it fair to, is it fair to say that both these guys are average to below average debaters? Depends on what you mean by, whether or not they're good debaters um yeah because it's all about sound bites and and how people perceive the debates so okay. um, they both have they both have their own sets of significant liabilities which yeah. are different um but they're they're both prone to saying things that are um that are crazy <laughs> so um but you know in different ways perhaps but yeah, I think that's that's a fair assessment, though. I mean, but I, but I do think they're both also self confident enough that they're going to want to yeah. debate. Um, and so I, yeah. I do predict debates will happen, and because it, it just doesn't seem that hard. I mean, like you can get, again, you can do this in a completely socially distanced way. As Matt said, you don't have to shake hands; like you, you just sort of, you know, wave at each other or something. <laughs> Find up some, you know, some handshaking. <laughs> bump, so, yeah, 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 kind I of. Mean, like, they, they, I mean, the Democratic Party did that, you know, towards yeah. the end, right? Yep. So, yep. so you can you can manage that, um, but yeah, I think they're both below average debaters at this point in their careers. Joe Biden actually used to be better. Um, like I actually thought he was pretty good in the vice presidential debates, but he has not been that caliber of late. So. Yeah. Um, sorry, we, we kind of got off on the tangent of, of the debates themselves. I think there is a not likely chance, but a not insignificant chance that um, that there's no that there aren't debates. Um, that one or more one or both candidates will use this as a strategic option okay. as a way of getting out of what they see as potential liability. Uh, if Joe Biden maintains a lead in battleground states, he may decide that there's not a lot of advantage to giving Trump more free advertising, and he may just try to be this sort of silent stalking horse against uh, against a president who's you know not doing well in a crisis management situation. I mean, and let's Trump, just face it. 
Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. That's okay. And Trump, uh, who is, you know, might want to project that he's laser focused on the crisis, might say, I don't have time to debate Sleepy Joe. I've really got to focus on yep. getting the economy open again. And I could see yeah. both of them sort of backing out of it. Although I don't, I think because of what you said, there is costs if one person wants to debate, the other one doesn't, that that's not likely. Yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I so, think it'd be more in favor. It'd be more to, to Trump's favor to back out in some ways. He does not do well in debates, really. But I don't know. I think he. I think his ego will want lead him to want to do it. That's my yeah. Opinion. No, I, I agree. I agree. Yep. Yeah, I, I would. I would be surprised if he would back down. Um, yeah. You know, Joe Biden. However, I mean, he's had some success with basically not making a lot of appearances, which you really can't necessarily, but yeah, right. but his approach so far is, I mean, he's done some town halls from his basement, right? He's got a nice setup, it seems, with cameras and lights and everything, but... It's getting better. <laughs> yeah, and, and the quality's improving, uh, you know, the production values are improving, but, but you know, he's, you know, considering he's not really doing a whole lot, um, he's not doing half bad. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, in some ways, there might be something to, you know, keeping, a, keeping things low-key and just letting Trump make himself more and more unpopular with the swing voters who Biden is going to count on to help him win in key in key states. So, but, you know, Biden also has his own liabilities. He's really low on fundraising. He has, you know, less than a 10th of the social media followers that Trump does. Um, he doesn't really have a brand. Trump does. And there's other problems too. So, yep, we'll see what happens. So this raises another question. And again, this is, um, stretching the bounds of political science. I'll be careful here what we can and can't say. But um, oftentimes when we project what it will be like for Donald Trump to run against a Democratic challenger, before we know who that challenger is, we refer to that challenger as a, as a generic Democrat. So how does Trump do versus generic Democrat? Um, versus how, do you, how does he do against a, a well-known Democratic entity like Joe Biden? In this case, is Joe Biden trying to have it both ways? For his supporters who like Joe Biden, he's Joe Biden, and for uh, other you know people in the in, in the American electorate, he is generic Democrat. He is just not Donald Trump. Whatever you whatever you dislike about Donald Trump, don't worry. Joe Biden is the other thing. So vote for him instead. Is he trying to kind of ride that line between being President Biden and being just not Trump? I mean, I think to some extent he is. And the reality of re-elections is that that's usually more or less how it functions anyway, right? Is that, I mean, it's it's mostly a referendum on the incumbent. And the incumbent's going to try to, you know, demonize the opponent. But it's mostly a referendum on the incumbent. Are you okay with the incumbent? And so, you know, mm -hmm. it does seem like he's he's kind of taking that tack a little bit. And that's that's probably the reality of this, is that this is less about how much do we love Joe Biden, but how much do we want another four years of Donald Trump? Yeah. There's that. And I, I think to Chris's question too, part of the problem that Joe Biden is having is that he has not yet started really tacking back towards the middle. Yeah. Um, you know, he has continued to stay and, and this, you know, traditionally candidates, whenever they, you know, are clearly going to be, you know, the, the, the presumptive nominee for their party. Usually you, you know, this by late spring, sometime in the summer, they start to tack away from their being, you know, the, the party line and trying to pivot their message towards the median voter. And mm -hmm. we've not seen this nearly as much with Biden as we we typically see with presidential candidates at this stage, um, and that's something he's got to do. But but you know he's not only did he tack uh, that that's the other thing. Like you know Biden came in and, and was perceived as the moderate, right? Mm -hmm. Which he wasn't, but relatively speaking, he was the moderate candidate, the compared to Bernie Sanders, was, yeah, compared to Bernie Sanders, um, but. You notice that over the past six months, he has tacked further and further left, even within the Democratic Party, and he has not yet tried to move back towards the middle. And so, and you know, that's going to hurt him. Uh, the sooner he gets back towards, you know, you know, trying to speak to, you know, the average, you know, middle America voter, the better it is for him. But the longer he still tries to, you know, you know rally the support of his own sort of hardcore democratic base, um, the more trouble he's going to have. You, know, you, you can't have it completely both ways. Um, right. And I, I'm, let I me do offer wonder the, if this is going to hurt him in the long run. Let me offer the counterpoint, though, which is huh. if you're working for the Biden campaign, you might say, we don't know who the median voter is right now. Not because that is inscrutable under normal circumstances, mm -hmm. but because we don't understand what it's like during a crisis. 
And the majority of Americans seemed just fine getting a stimulus check from the government um, and are potentially fine with getting more of them, right? And this is normally something that a lot of Americans would say, I have concerns about the national debt or I have concerns about gross government overspending or people who don't deserve, you know, handouts getting handouts we're basically saying this is this is an unprecedented economic time and could we see sort of a short-term effect where that median voter scoots maybe two steps closer to bernie sanders than they otherwise would be uh and this strategy pays off for biden or do you think the, do you think the median voter is going to kind of revert to what we typically know as the median voter before november uh, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, there's some evidence that there is maybe a little bit of increased support for um, certain sorts of, you know, large welfare state programs, you know, that that Bernie Sanders has been, you know, touting since, you know, time immemorial, right? Specifically so, healthcare. Yeah. Yeah. So so I think, you know, there there's perhaps an advantage there. If, like you said, is advantage going to be, you know, uh, have a long enough duration um, to allow, um, you know, Biden to capitalize off of it? There, there's that question as well. Um, but, but, you know, Biden's tack leftward and, you know, started a long time ago mm-hmm. and, and it was clear that he was a presumptive nominee before things really ramped up. We had this massive government response, right? So that, that decision by the Biden campaign, you know, predates, predates COVID-19 and the government's response to it. So that's another thing to keep in mind, keep in mind as well. Right. The other thing I would just say, would just say about this whole question about them, like the tacking left versus going to the center is, I mean, it depends on where you think the votes are there to be won, right? And which, right. Vote, which voters most need persuading. Um, so the, the tacking left suggests to me that the Biden campaign at this point is more concerned about making sure you turn out the Bernie voters, right? Which Hillary Clinton wasn't wholly successful in doing. Um, you know, so you need to get those people out, right? And so you need to persuade them that, look, there's enough here for you that I am a truly substantive difference with Donald Trump, not just in style, but in terms of, you know, policy gains you can expect from me, right? And so, um, and that might be where they think they, you know, the votes are, right? Um, and then you're relying on, you know, the the middle voters just to say like, okay, I mean, if they like Donald Trump enough to vote for him, they're probably gonna vote for him regardless of what I do. Again, it's a referendum. And if they don't, then they're going to go for the not Trump. And that's me too. Right. Um, and so I'm going to sort of hope to pick up as many as possible there, but there's not that much I can do about it. I need to make sure I turn my base out. I mean, that's the other way you think about the election and maybe that's the the calculation Biden's making. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as to argue with myself, um, there's still <laughs> a lot of time um, we have, we have six months, right. There's still enough mm-hmm. time, you know, oh, yeah. people don't really, you know, that, you know, the average American voter who flip flops back and forth, you know, is not paying close attention to what the candidates are saying right now, especially the, the challenge. Especially right? this year, right? Yeah, so exactly. So um, so if Biden, you know, by the time August rolls around, did, you know, a big switcheroo and and started moderating his position on some things and focused on attacking Trump and, and not, you know, saying silly things like, I support the Green New Deal and whatever else, which is not very helpful for you. I think if he started doing that in August, that might be soon enough, right? We, we have a right. lot of time left. Yep, I agree. And that time, it leads me to my last question for you all, because um, there's a lot of time for campaign messages to change. We should expect these campaigns to go through multiple seasons of campaign messaging. Yep. Mm-hmm. But as we think about sort of durable messages from this campaign, it strikes me that um, it would be weird if we got to November and neither candidate was mentioning coronavirus at all. I think it's incredibly likely that they're both talking about the economy. Either Trump's talking about the economy because he's fixed it and the economy is rebounding by November. That's very unlikely. Or he's doing expansive things to help fix it. And he's looking for ways to blame the problem on Democrats or even Obama. Um, That's sort of my thing. Um, And for Biden, he's either critiquing Trump's handling of the economy or he's critiquing his handling of, of coronavirus but it raises the question here. If you were advising either one of these campaigns, should they be conflating public health and the economy or should they be treating those issues as separate issues for voters? I mean, they're, they're interconnected in the sense that, you know, the responses to COVID are, are obviously having a deep impact on the economy. So mm-hmm. um, I don't know how you separate them in that sense. Right. And you, I mean, to some extent, you have to think about the the trade-offs, right? Which is, you know, like 
But voters don't like to think about trade-offs. They don't like to think about trade-offs, right? And they don't like to think in terms of nuance, right? And so, I mean, it's it's it, but it is it is a complicated thing as we've talked about on here before, where you know, okay, so we can try to save more lives from the coronavirus, but then what are the cost of lives? Um, because we're, you know, because people are going to be in poverty and will die for other reasons, right? Um, because of inadequate healthcare, inadequate nutrition, mm -hmm. and, you know, a host of other reasons, depression and so forth, right? So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I think, you know, a good argument, you do have to connect them and say, like, there are trade-offs here, right? And, and we are, here's, here's how far we're willing to go down this side, and here's how far we are willing to go down that side. And obviously, Republicans have been much more in favor of let's lean in favor of economic reopening. Democrats have been much more in favor of let's prioritize health, these sort of immediate health outcomes. I don't want to say health outcomes because I think the economic, as we've said before, also has health outcomes. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, so that's so I don't know how you really end up separating them, although they may try. Yeah. I mean, I think in the minds of Americans, they are pretty well connected. And so even if a, if a campaign focuses more on public health or more on the economy, there's always going to be the other sort of half of that in the back of voters' minds. It's just that different parties, like you said, Chris, are going to need to take different strategies. Um, you know, I think Trump is going to benefit by either, you know, touting what successes he's had or saying that, um, that, you know, we need to continue to, you know, we don't need to change horses midstream in the middle of a crisis. Um, I've been doing a pretty good job so far. Why do we need to, you know, that's that's a pretty classic sort of argument you yep. see in times of crisis. Um, he could also say like, hey, you know, we need to continue reopening the economy if the Democrats win, they want to shut everything back down. Um, yep. Because the Democrats, you know, want want to, you know, shut everything down until we have a vaccine. And that's just not viable. So you can make that argument. That's going to be effective amongst some. Um, yep. You know, meanwhile, the the Biden campaign can, you know, float other arguments about, you know, look at the cost of, you know, the Republicans reopening. And if, if we continue to have Trump, you know, we're going to continue to have, you know, someone incompetent, someone who is non-compassionate right. in office, blah, blah, blah. And so there's, there's just going to be different arguments. And the question to me is if they're going to make arguments that play to their bases or if they're going to try to make arguments that are somehow persuasive to people in the middle. And given how both of them have been campaigning, campaigning to the base, I'm not sure <laughs> if they have the ability or the sophistication to effectively target um, middle America. Yeah, I think I, I think that's probably right. And I think they probably focus more on a base and and sort of make appeals of sorts to the middle, but mostly just sort of let the chips fall. I mean, I will say, too, like polling has not been great for Donald Trump of late, but one no. number that is a positive for him kind of related to what you just said, Matt is like what Americans are worried about. Right. And so by 38 has been tracking this and there's about twice as many people were, who are very worried about the economy than are very worried about getting infected with coronavirus. Right. The number for the economy is about 57%. The coronavirus is right around 30, 31%. Right. And so, um, you know, that suggests that th those kind of people who are very worried about that might be more sympathetic to a Trump kind of appeal. Of, like we need to focus, you know, we need to kind of fall on that side more, um, especially if Biden gets identified too much with a, a kind of cautious approach. And again, you know, speaking from his basement for the convention might then be a, a symbol of, of that kind of, I mean, what, what could be seen as overcautious in some people's minds, two, two on one side, not enough on the other. Right. And then one more thing, you're, you're sort of swing voters. There's not that many true swing voters out there. But those swing voters, the question is like, what what makes a swing voter sort of tick? Swing voters are not super ideological, right? No, and right. so if and you're a swing voter- they're not sophisticated either. No. No, they're not, but but they do think through, they, they do think through their options. And so the question mm -hmm. is, since they're non-ideological, it might be the case that they decide to pick the person who appears to be less ideological on the COVID pandemic response. Yep. So, yep. so if Trump as in the attempt of Republicans to reopen is seen as being more ideological and more partisan, that might push them away. However, if the Democrats attempt to sort of double down on keeping everything closed indefinitely, if that's seen as more ideological and less of a, and less common Republicans seen as more common sense, mm -hmm. that might drive those, those Republicans towards, um, right. excuse me, those independents towards Republicans. And, you know, there's, and these swing states, you know, they're not super, they're not super left or super right, right? You, you And so it's hard to say which way, which way it goes, but I think this, I think this is going to be a factor. All right. So with that in mind, guys, what's the chances 
that Joe Biden breaks his vow to name a female vice president, a vice presidential nominee, and names Anthony Fauci as his vice presidential nominee. <laughs> That's a zero. <laughs> Nothing? Nothing? Uh, you are a vice presidential nominee older than Biden, there's a zero uh -huh. chance. He's a white guy, yeah. Jeez. I don't know, man. Any vice president, like you if, can't go older than seventy-eight. <laughs> you've got, you've, you've got to know that uh, the vetting team for for the Biden campaign is saying, is there anybody out there who has a doctor in front of their name that we could has an MD at the back of their name that we could put on this ticket right right now, right now? I don't know. Um. All right, guys, uh, we're almost out of time. Uh, but before we go, uh, we we uh, are planning to do something a little bit different this summer. Last summer, we basically uh, took the summer off uh, with some uh, with some other kinds of programming on the channel. But we think there's enough things happening. We'd like to check in with uh, our listeners periodically over the course of the summer. So this isn't the last you're hearing of us. But it's finals week here at Bethel. It doesn't feel like finals week because we're all stuck in our houses. But it's finals week. And uh, as we look forward to this weird summer, guys, do you have any summer media recommendations? Maybe some good beach reads for uh, for our listeners, some good poli sci themed beach reads. Beach? We get to go to the beach? I know. Uh, as long as we're, we're, we're good at bombing beaches. Uh, no. <laughs> what you got? <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> um. You know, one book I have not read. I checked it out and then I didn't get around to it. And I've read the beginning and end and kind of skimmed through it. Um, that it seems interesting. <laughs> murder mystery. What's that? It's a murder mystery. Oh, no. Read the end first. That, that would be fun. Um, no, this is a actual political science book. Okay. Um, and it's by a guy named, whose first name I can't really pronounce very well, Eitan, or Eitan Hirsch. Um, he's at Tufts University and it's called Politics is for Power. And the basic argument he seems to be making in this book is that we have become a nation of political hobbyists. In other words, we treat politics like we treat sports. We get really excited about it. We like to yell about it. Um, you know, wear the, the colors of our favorite team and so forth. We don't actually do the hard work of politics. And he's starting to say, we need to think about politics much more in terms of how do we do it and do it well um, and really accomplish something. Um, and I, we, I had my senior SEM students read kind of the intro and the conclusion because I thought it was a good way to kind of think about like that practical you know, like what should we be doing with the information we have? Um, so, so that's on my list of things I might get back to this summer. Politics is for power. Yes. Politics is for Eaton Hirsch. Yep. Okay. Came Great. out this year. For, hot off the presses. Nice. And our All local right. library did have it. So it is popular enough that it's at least in some <laughs> local library system. Either that or you've got a pretty like good acquisitions librarian at your library. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In Blaine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Matt, you have a recommendation? Um, so yeah, so I have a several things on my list. Um, so one of the more theory-ish books I'm going to read is a book on C.S. Lewis and politics and the natural law by um, Dyer and Watson, uh, the latter mm -hmm. of whom is, is a... a former and continuing mentor, you might say. Um, so that's more on the theory philosophy side. Um, and then as far as political science, um, I'm wanting to read a book by James Campbell called uh, Polarized, Making Sense of a Divided America. It's just sort of a classic. It's not a super deep dive into polarization, I guess, by political science standards, but um, but it's an important book that's come out relatively recently um, on this topic. And and, um, you know, political science has been grappling with, you know, the issue of, you know, partisan polarization, ideological polarization in the United States for, for several decades now. Um, but there's more and more data coming out, um, you know, every year and the scholarships keeps getting updated. And so this is a relatively recent book within the past few years um, that I'm one of the ones I'm planning on reading this summer. All right. So Polarization by James Campbell. Yes. All right. You guys have given us um, plenty to read, so um, I'm going to give you something to listen to, and then I'm going to call on Sam for something I think he wants you to listen to also. So I'm going to re recommend a podcast that's produced by the uh, magazine uh, uh, Foreign Policy. Uh, Foreign Policy has a flagship podcast. This is not it, uh, but they've gotten um, connected with um, a podcast called I Spy. And I'm in love with this podcast right now. I Spy <laughs> is a bunch of firsthand accounts of former intelligence agents around the world just regaling us with one of the stories of something they did. 
the most recent episode is um, a female uh, CIA agent who discusses uh, the she she was a domestically based, but she was in charge of tracking the movements of uh, Al Zarqawi in Iraq, Mm -hmm. trying to um, contain and then kill him and discusses the process of tracking him and using emergent drone technology in the early days of the Iraqi insurgency. And uh, it's, man, every story is just gold. They're awesome. So if you're kind of like a Tom Clancy or a Dan Brown, kind of like you like those kinds of Pulp Fiction books, but at the same time, you want to know like what's really happening. Boy, those will really scratch your itch. I Spy, it's really good. It's on my list. It's great. Sam, what you got? Uh, mine actually lines up perfectly with yours. It's a podcast. It's a Spotify exclusive, so you have to listen to it on Spotify. But you can listen for free on Spotify. You don't need you don't need a premium subscription. Uh, and it's a podcast that came out last week. All eight episodes are available, um, and it's called Wind of Change. Um, and it's <clears throat> the podcast is written and narrated by uh, New Yorker writer Patrick Redden Keefe, um, and it's basically starts with a rumor that he heard. Um, from a CIA agent um, in 10 years ago that the 1990 Scorpion song, Wind of Change, which was this um, kind of power ballad uh, that was really popular in, a uh, little bit popular in America. I remember this song, but it was really popular. It's in my popular. head right now. Thanks. Yes, it was really popular in um, in Europe and especially Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. Um, and it's about... You know, it, Scorpions is not a political band at all, but it, but this song is a deeply political song about sort of changes happening. So, you know, it's, it comes out right as the Berlin wall is falling um, as the Soviet union's uh, starting to crumble before then. Um, and the rumor that, that uh, Patrick Redden Keefe hears is that this song was actually written by the CIA and given to the Scorpions. So it's a, it's a, it's an eight episode series where Keith basically tries to prove if this is true. Uh, and it and it goes in all kinds of weird directions to he talks to CIA agents, he ta- former CIA agents, he talks to people who uh, make modified GI Joe action figures. Um, <laughs> he, he ends up uh, the fine final episode he t- talks to Klaus Meine, who's uh, purportedly is the author of this song, right? That for, uh, from Scorpions. Um, and this is one of those where the journey is its own reward. Um, you're, you may not, I mean, I'm, I'm going to spoil that at the end. He doesn't prove it. Cause all the, if you, if you Google this, right. you'll see all kinds of, he does, he can't prove it, but it's about trying to chase down a conspiracy tied to the CIA. And it is <laughs> such a fun listen. And if you, Chris, if you think the song wind of changes in your head right now, it will be deeply, it's very earwormy and it gets, it will deeply be in <laughs> your head after you listen to this. Cause every wow. episode you hear it. Nice. Wow. All right, guys. I'm looking forward to all four of these things. Uh, uh, fan or friends who are listening, thanks for listening to us. Thanks for uh, being part of this ride with us. We're not done yet. We will be back through the summer. Uh, we'll be even more back in the fall as we ramp up to a weekly podcast. Uh, but until then, you can always get a hold of us at uh, channel3900 at gmail.com if you want to talk about the, the channel. If you want to talk about this episode, this this podcast in particular, you can email us at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. And thanks for those of you who do. We'd love to hear from you. Until we're back in your feed uh, this uh, in a few weeks, thanks for listening, and go Royals. Go Royals.